Welcome to Design Pod with me, Hamish Kilburn, the editor of Hotel Designs. And welcome, may I just add, to series four. That's right, we're back with more content, more conversations to inspire, hopefully, all design and architecture enthusiasts. We also have a new sponsor, Geberit. The bathroom brand has kindly come on board as our series sponsor and throughout the eight episodes in this series, we'll be taking a look at the brand's sustainability credentials and its product innovation, while also teasing its latest hotel guest experience report written by leading design pioneers and architects. So in the first episode of this series, we wanted it to be bold, big, grand, Our aim here is to redefine sustainability. Bear with me. We want to broaden its meaning so that it's not scary, but instead we want to include social as well as environmental driving factors to just ensure that we're operating in a consciously clean space. And to do this, I've got just the architect in mind, Richard Holland, co-founder of Holland Harvey Architects. I think if you're not as au fait with the topic, maybe everything is sort of end up having this hippie aesthetic, you know, lots of bamboo, people, for whatever reason, associate that with sustainability. And it's so much more nuanced than that. But it's not just about the environment. You know, it's, you've got to look at everything. And people yeah. are a huge part of that. And I think in our industry, maybe that's the thing that gets a bit overlooked. It's so, yeah. so quick to calculate embodied carbon, operational carbon, environmental impact, but actually a huge part of our environment are the 7 billion people that we share this planet with so we should be be thinking about them as much as we should be thinking about everything else it's it's all part of one system you can't just isolate one part of it and try and improve that you've got to think about the whole thing on their website the studio says that they believe that design should be all about making positive environmental and social impacts and since the studio launched in 2012 that is exactly what they have done and that has always been their mission We elevate the everyday, they add on their website. Well, Richard first came onto my radar back in 2019 after completing his work on Inhabit's first consciously designed hotel. And that is a great example of a hotel where the hotelier, the operator, the owner, the architects and the designers have just worked collectively together, have the same vision to create a hotel that really answers to its neighbourhood but is also environmentally friendly as well. And I mentioned in the interview with Richard, but one example of this is it's a grade two listed building and that is no excuse anymore really to not be able to design consciously and environmentally because they absolutely smashed it. And since then, just last year, in fact, they opened their second hotel, which I think takes that concept even further, which I explore with Richard in the interview. I caught up with the architect from his London home And I guess I wanted to start the interview by just understanding how the idea, how the concept of Holland Harvey Architects came about. Today's episode is all around sustainability, but really beyond that, I think looking at the social impact of um, ESG and us just thinking more consciously when it comes to design, architecture and hospitality. Um, We've got loads of projects to, to, to reference in terms of what you've been working on. And I've been following your journey for, for years, actually, since Inhabit launched their first um, hotel in Paddington. And it's been a really meaningful journey, that particular that particular brand. And we'll, we'll discuss all of that. But I think first, what I want to know is, how did you get into architecture and, and what was it about design and architecture that really captured your imagination? And when did you realize it was going to be a career? That is a wonderful question. I think if you, 
If you ask my mum, she has this story about me being sort of 14 years old and telling her for the first time I wanted to be an architect. Although I'm, I'm not sure whether that's something that she sort of created uh, in her mind over the years. But I think I always had an interest in, uh, I guess, you know, it's a bit cliche, but science and maths, I was always very strong at. Um, I've always had an interest in the creative arts. And I guess by extension and, and something that I'm getting to explore now later on in my career is this interest in, in the environment and, and, and the way in which design impacts people. Um, so, you know, and, and the origins of our practice are that we, uh, so myself and Jonathan Harvey set up the studio back in 2012. So we, we, we turned 10 sort of uh, um, at the end of last year, which was kind of unbelievable, actually. Amazing. Um, but our, our story is that we, we met at university in Sheffield in in freshers week actually i can still sort of very clearly remember in my mind turning around and meeting john for the first time um i guess we always had this uh you know it starts off this sort of pub chat and then uh gets a bit more serious as you get a bit older and i guess really the origins of the studio are that jonathan and i were both working in quite large uh london practices and this is sort of the the aftermath of the financial crisis um which was a period of uh, if you remember sort of austerity politically, uh, it, both in terms of sort of the profession, you know, I, I was very lucky at the time to have a job. Um, it wasn't easy to find that job. I think coming out of university during that period, sort of into this complete absence of work or anything happening in the architectural community. Um, and at the same time, there seemed to be this like proliferation of architectural competitions. So, you know, I was lucky enough to be employed, but what I was mainly doing was competitions. And kind of what I couldn't reconcile in my head was this idea that you had these organizations with huge sums of money, yet they were getting all these architects to work for free. Uh, and then they would maybe pick one and then you'd get like a 5,000 pound honorarium or something. And it just felt so wrong at a time when every time you switched on your TV, not dissimilar to now, you know, you, you were visibly aware of people suffering. And so actually the origins of Holland, Holland Harvey was me and John getting together in the park uh, every other lunchtime and sort of talking about how we could potentially have a small impact on this situation and um, we came up with the idea of, of this organization called free architecture uh, mm -hmm. with a couple of other friends and the premise of the organization was that we would pair architectural practices with third sector clients and because that felt like a much more meaningful way of creating work and potentially opening up leads to future work much more than this sort of competition culture did the the downfall of the organization was perhaps the name because everybody just expected us to do their loft <laughs> conversions for free um and so and and you know the reality of having to 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 pay the bills kicked in so that idea kind of morphed into holland harvey and that and that genuinely was the origins of our practice and then we started renting a desk in sort of a co-working space before co-working was really a thing um, on Viner Street in East London. Um, and then from there, we just sort of grew the business project by project, team member by team member to where we are today, which is a team of 25. We moved just down the road. We're still on the canal, on the Regent's Canal. Yeah, and we've got a really lovely team and we're very fortunate to have some longstanding clients, the, like, the likes of Inhabit, who've supported us over the years and who have really, I guess, allowed us to push this agenda of environmental uh, and social impact and that's starting to manifest now in some some much more sophisticated ways that we can probably touch on later in this this conversation yeah 
Absolutely. I mean, go, going back to when you were training to be um, an architect, was social impact and environmental impact, was that was that part of the, the process? Or was that, you know, like, because I feel like now in, in university, and when people are training, that's like, probably the way in which people are learning. And that's like the approach. But back when you were training, has it changed that much? Or has it always been there for designers and architects? Oh, definitely. I mean, so as I said, I went to the University of Sheffield, and it is a very, um, uh, left-leaning shall we say um, uh, institution and particularly the architecture school really like progressive in their thinking and really even back then putting uh, social impact and environmental impact really mm -hmm. at the fore of all of our projects mm -hmm. you know we um, during my master's for example we used to do these things called live projects and in my fifth year my live project was uh, which actual sort of real projects out in the community in the city of Sheffield and in my fifth year I was helping to establish uh, an uh, what was it called like an architecture it's like an architecture club for kids basically and we took uh, young people from uh, troubled parts of the city and we ran workshops and we took them around interesting buildings we taught them about you know sort of uh, the, the, sort of the beginnings of architecture and then in my sixth year we did a project again on a in a quite troubled part of Sheffield um, working with the local community and we we took over a um, derelict house from a local housing association and we turned it into this sort of again like experiential architectural visitor center to sort of get people not so much engaged in, in architecture but to get them to engage with community and some of the changes that were, were happening in their community um, through through uh, this this project and weirdly you know then in the in the early years of my uh, my professional career I was working at Studio Great West and I was very fortunate to be working on the Park Hill project, um, which was, uh, I don't know if you remember, but it's a, quite a, it's a grade two listed um, uh, housing development uh, from the 1950s that sort of sits behind the, the train station in Sheffield. At the time, you know, uh, groundbreaking in its design, but fell into disrepair, fell into disrepute. And then over the last sort of decade has been um, uh, uh, refurbished by uh, Urban Splash, who've done an amazing job. And I was working on phase one. So again, I've always had this sort of uh, weird sort of strand that's been very focused in Sheffield and Park Hill and mm. always about communities and social impact. And so it just felt very natural that that's what we should be trying to do in our practice as well. Yeah, um, totally. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the reality of, you know, architecture as a profession is, is quite fractal. It's, it's, it's cottage industries, you know, it, I don't know what it is, the, the nature of the way that we're, we're taught, but lawyers don't do it. Accountants don't really do it. You know, you, you work for a big firm, you just work for a big firm. Whereas in architecture, we all have this desire to open our own shop. And inevitably, when you do so, you're starting on small projects, the single story rear extensions, the loft conversions. If you're lucky, a couple of small commercial refurbishments. So it takes a while for you to build up a portfolio substantial enough that you're actually then able to pursue those interests again in a meaningful way um, and we're very lucky now that that's sort of where we've got to in the, in the life of our studio. Mm. I can imagine um, setting up in 2012 and having this um, agenda it, it was quite difficult to kind of break through certain barriers and especially when greenwashing is rife in the commercial industry because it just is. Um, I guess it got it took it took you until you met the team at Inhabit which is actually when I first you know, when you first came onto my radar in 2019, I believe, when their first hotel opened in London. And it was just yep. such a great example of um, a building that is, was it grade two listed building? Yeah, both sites so, so, are grade two <clears throat> listed, yeah. 
so a lot of um excuses that you hear in you know hospitality if a building can't be sustainable in its architecture and design is because oh it's a great two-listed building there's only so much we can do and that then inhabit comes along and completely washes away that theory because you're able to completely make this hotel eco consciously designed um totally in, in sort of enveloped with with the social community around it as well what was that like having that big break with Inhabit, um, working with them and developing this concept and then really being, I don't know, just on the same on the same level completely in terms of your thinking? Or was it that, that smooth? I mean, it seems that smooth from the outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's good, good, good marketing. No, no, definitely. Genuinely, it, it's been an absolutely incredible opportunity um, to go on that journey with them. Because I think, you know, we started working on the, the first Inhabit project back in 2017, because obviously it's a couple of years until it actually opens. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we were, we were only five years old as a practice. So even just to be given the opportunity to work on a scheme like that at that, at that you know, point in our careers was, was incredible. And then, you know, actually the original, the original premise of, of Inhabit, as it still is, is about wellness and well-being. Um, and it was it was only really through that design process we were like well a core part of that is the way in which we uh, that we we sort of look at this project through the lens of environmental social impact of course it is you know you can't expect people to feel good about space and feel well in themselves if they're surrounded by like toxic materials and you know nasty things from China and and so it it, it genuinely was um, an amazing partnership where they had an agenda we had an agenda and then we sort of it, it came in it, it dovetailed in the middle and really became something much stronger than the sum of its parts if that makes sense and i think in terms you know the environmental impact in a way it's very straightforward when you're working with uh, an existing building because the greenest building is one that already exists all of that embodied carbon that you would use creating a new building it's there it's done obviously there are challenges both both sites that we've now done were previously hotels so there was never any change of use and in a way, we were kind of fortunate that the, 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 the previous hotels had so poorly utilized the buildings, you know, they'd been really messed around with in sort of the 1970s and 80s when heritage was not high on people's agenda. Um, and so in a way, the opportunity came from us sort of forensically unpicking what had been done and then starting to reinstate what we you know our understanding of some of the original plan forms for example to create this space that was you know allowed the the client to satisfy their brief which was about community and openness and people coming out of their rooms and spending time in the lounge and the library but then also doing that in a way where we could really focus on the specification of materials or the story behind the furniture or the lighting so it, it just became a very happy marriage i guess and then when we started to look at the second site it was we suddenly had the ability, it was much larger, you know, the first site's 88 keys, the second site's 157, I believe. It was like, we, we were then given the opportunity with proof of concept, okay, go, go, go. We could really turn up the volume and we could really push some of those ideas much further than we were able to in that first site because of our expertise, our knowledge, our skills, but also the confidence of the client that this was the right thing to do. So yeah, absolutely incredible journey. Yeah, let's come back to the first site because um, I, I was lucky enough to review the hotel during its soft launch. And when I say like it's a home from home, it is so comfortable. The moment you walk into that building, 
you just feel like you just feel relaxed and calm and peaceful and at one with nature of course but what in terms of the materials did you use and what were the architectural kind of plans to to kind of work with the interior design because anyone can you know put a beautiful color scheme together well maybe not everyone <laughs> but <laughs> for the architecture to work as hard as it did I guess to to connect these spaces maybe just talk about that because I, th I think that's I think we hear a lot from especially in the commercial sector you know value of sustainability like everything has to have a value right but it really gives that hotel its personality and and you know because it's a really clear a clear approach to hospitality and design working together in order to do good for the environment but also do good for the neighborhood as well and to bring people in so yeah, in terms of I materials think... what did you use so i guess to be honest in the first site the material choices were not as um i guess the, the second site was the one where we really really pushed the material choices the first the first site was very much more about creating um, you know that, those words home away from home it's that kind of classic brief from a from a hotel client that they want their everyone wants their hotel to feel like a home away from home and everyone wants their home to feel like a hotel right yeah. um, and that's all that's basically all of our portfolio of work is, is is the things in that range so it was again it was unpicking a very poorly converted building kind of trying to re it was six Georgian townhouses um, and it was just a bit of a labyrinth, a bit of a rabbit's warren when we when we took on the site. It was very dark, light wells had been filled in. There was this sort of weird, horrible restaurant in the basement. You had to go down a spiral stair. So it was just kind of like stripping away all that nonsense and just, you know, the, the Georgians knew what they were doing. They knew how to design beautifully proportioned spaces. So a lot of it was just reinstating that you know, can we take the ceiling up so that we can see the top of these beautiful original sash windows? Can we reinstate the sort of the, the sense of the rooms? Obviously, a house is very different to a hotel. We did look to uh, places like Etham in Stockholm, um, which is an incredible precedent. It's a much smaller offering. You know, I think that's only 11 keys. This was 88. So it was like, how can we take those principles and scale it up? But it was things like, you know, having an open kitchen there is a prep kitchen in the base for base basement but that sort of front of house experience we wanted to create the communal kitchen table which has you know fridges underneath it has hot plates with stone that you can kind of take out so it became this really hard-working multifunctional space that can operate uh, for a breakfast service or it can operate for you know events you can set out cocktails and and canapes i don't know if you've ever been to an event there but it really really works well for that mm. um and that kind of gave it that all day vibe, if you like, which again, I think the worst thing about staying in a hotel, sometimes you walk through the door and there's just no one in the reception. It's kind of deadly quiet, except some sort of elevator music playing in the background. Well, it's also quite interesting because from a design perspective, I mean, we, we hear a lot about lighting changing throughout the day in order to mimic different vibes and in different environments. But if you haven't got the people and you haven't got the social setup, then what's the point? Yeah. And actually... You know all these artificial lights that mimic the sun isn't it nicer just to have big windows so oh, you don't can say kind that. Of... i'm just about to do a podcast on circadian lighting but yes of oh, course well. the we best natural light the best lighting is natural the best lighting. <laughs> and in the winter it's impractical so i do see the benefits of circadian lighting and we we have done it in we have done it in a couple of the schemes it's great but sometimes i think people just kind of fall on technology as a replacement for nature and actually it's all there for free right so take that first and then, you know, see what you can layer on to, to improve that experience, I think. And I guess that was another part of it. It was just like stripping away all the stuff that perhaps didn't feel necessary. I think like, I don't know what's sort of happened in the hospitality world, but there was definitely been a period where people just like adding on layers of 
TVs and technology. And so the principle was just to strip all that away. And it's, it's a place for rest and relaxation and curling up in a corner with a book and finding these little opportunities and just, you know, dark corners where you can sit with a magazine. They provided a box as well for your mobile phone. I know that's yeah. so simple, but at the time I was, I think I was reviewing it while I was in between meetings and stressful. Because the thing is with, with my job is that although we get to review lovely hotels, it is usually, especially in London, in between big events or your, your mind's elsewhere. So, you know, turning up quite stressed probably is quite fair. Um, and then just being able to shut off. I was like, oh, I just put my phone away and just yeah. look at it for like hours. That's amazing. Mm. Yeah. So the way you're describing the the, the hotel, we'll, we'll move on to the, the second hotel because that is absolutely amazing. And I, I love the material story there. But um, the way you're describing it is there's there's a real blur between the architecture and the design. Your role, obviously, as the architect is to fundamentally, you know, keep the structure and make sure the spaces are um, intuitive. But how closely to the designers do you have to work these days, especially with the approach that that you have socially and environmentally to ensure that you get to the end result? Uh, so, again, you know, I think we were very lucky. We were working with uh, a lady called Caitlin Henderson on, on both Inhabit projects. And she was, I guess, uh, very much involved with the specification of a lot of the furniture and, and color choices and some of the material choices. So a critical eye, I guess, in the project. And we were sort of more um technical delivery you know producing the drawings and and sort of the 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 fitted stuff if you like but it was it it wasn't kind of like she had her scope never the two shall meet it was very much a conversation throughout the whole process and we worked together on the second site as well but then we 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 had a shared interest with working with outside uh, organizations as well and i guess that's also sort of the tenet of our studio is that we're not sort of um we don't see ourselves as the architects in the ivory tower you know just dictating what happens like I think the, the best design comes from when you have this layering, this texturing of ideas and expertise and, and outside knowledge. And so we work with people like Goldfinger, who are this incredible um, social enterprise based in West London. Uh, they, uh, they, they, they're all about the circular economy, you know, zero waste, waste into gold, I think is their, um, their, their mantra. Uh, they work with people from disadvantaged backgrounds. They use joinery as a means to sort of help with their rehabilitation. They, they have a, um, essentially a soup kitchen on site that they call the People's Kitchen. You know, they're very much embedded in their community. And so we, we, uh, we work with them to create a lot of, not all the furniture, but a lot of the furniture the in, in, the, in the public areas. There's, an, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a huge communal table, which I think is my favorite part. Um, again, that principle of getting people out of their rooms down, sitting opposite someone at breakfast and having a conversation. A lot of people are not into that. That's fine. There's a kind of there's a table in the corner where you can sit on your own. But it genuinely, I think that that table is probably the most used space in the hotel as a result. So, mm. you know, everything down to this, that table, we've got photos of the making of that table. And it's just incredible to to, to, to think that that thing is, is designed for that space and only that space. But at the same time, that felt a bit wasteful. And actually during COVID, because everything was just kind of, uh, shut down and uh, a lot of people like me were sitting at home twiddling our thumbs thinking what happens next I actually had uh, a really amazing uh, conversation with Marie uh, who is the one of the co-founders of Goldfinger um, and basically we came with this idea that we'd spent all of this time and energy designing these pieces of furniture and wasn't it a shame that actually they only existed once and then that was it so as part of that we got permission from uh, from uh, Inhabit uh, and we we basically gave them a license in perpetuity to recreate that furniture. So now you can buy a lot of that furniture on their online retail platform. So you can kind of take a bit of the hotel home with you. So that sort of, in a way, 
it's, the, it's about these like ripples of, of impact. You know, you've designed this one table. Great. It's beautiful. You helped a social enterprise. But wouldn't it be amazing if that same social enterprise gets another 200 orders for that same table? That's where you've really made a difference. Right. Yeah. And I think that that idea became a bit of a theme as we then scaled up into the second site. And we could start to do that to an even greater extent. Every time I walk in there, you know, you, you feel like every piece has its place. And it, there's a feeling there, you know, it's not just a look or an aesthetic. So, so that makes a lot of sense. And in terms of the material story, I mean, when I heard about what, what you did with the um, re-repurposing, working with, uh, is it Granby Workshop? Um, yep. Using the marble from the original site and then creating that into a, a centerpiece fireplace in the reception. I mean, that that's just the epitome of circular economy and you know, the, the definition around sustainability has changed massively, you know, just because something's recycled doesn't mean it's sustainable, because what's it going to be in the future? That yeah. I think is a, a great example of doing the right thing, but actually making it really work and it being its greatest strength in, in the public areas. Explain yeah. how that conversation even started, because at the time, I don't think that was a common thing to do. So how did yeah. that come about? <laughs> I think, you know, we it's kind of like you, you open pandora's box a bit so with the first site you know we introduced the client to to goldfinger and, and some other organizations and then they're like well who else do you know you <laughs> know what else can we do amazing and, and then and then you sort of like well you know there's actually this amazing organization up in liverpool uh, so granby workshop for if you don't know is um they were sort of an uh, part of the granby street project i think it was which won the turner prize uh, it was done by assemble uh, back in can't remember the date but a few years ago and sort of the the legacy of that project is um the ceramics workshop and they do all sorts of wonderful things but uh, one of the products that caught our eye was called granby rock and it was essentially they took the waste it's it, it basically sort of derelict streets in liverpool that they have repurposed and re rehabilitated essentially so they had a huge amount of waste brick you know tarmac whatever and they had figured out this method to basically crunch it all up and turn it into this really beautiful almost terrazzo-like product and so this caught our eye and at the same time we were starting the strip out of inhabit 2 and queen's gardens and you know that the the fit out wasn't aesthetically beautiful <laughs> previous but there were some really lovely materials that we used that had um you know these stone counters lots of expensive marble it just felt such a waste to be chucking these things in a skip so actually instead um, they were collected by granby and they were crushed up and turned into this custom terrazzo and again, it's this idea that we, we're we not so naive to think that, that by designing one fireplace, we're going to save the world. But what it is, it's become an amazing showcase of what that organization can do. And because of all the amazing press and awards and things that the project has received, hopefully people see that fireplace because it sits behind the main reception. They go, that's cool. You know, tell me a little bit about that. And then maybe they go away and they order some some products from, from Granby. And, and, and it's kind of a bit of, a, a, again, that ripple effect, that wider impact that we can have. And I think that was a theme throughout that whole second hotel is, okay, we've got to design this. How can we make it tell a story essentially? And then how can that story, how can we then tell that story to everyone to make sure that they go and support these SMEs, social enterprises, whatever they might be. Yeah, I think when people hear the word sustainability, they kind of crawl into their shell a little bit and they're a bit worried about, you know, talking about it in case they say something wrong. But that is just a great example of how a sustainable initiative, a conscious initiative can just merge into 
art outside the frame and it just being like you know allowed the design to work harder and to be deeper and to have more meaning and as you say people that it becomes a talking point do you still work with that company on, on other projects uh not currently but what i think it did trigger and, and i'm sure we will again for sure um what it did trigger was this kind of slight obsession with well, what else can we crunch up and turn into other things so yeah. we're working uh we're doing a restaurant fit out at the moment and we're working with a company who take uh old coffee grounds and oyster shells and crunch them up into solid surfaces that are going to form the tables in this in this uh in this restaurant so yeah it, not specifically granby but just the idea that you can make something out of waste um i think is yeah. a very powerful idea and something we, we're definitely exploring more there's a lot of trade shows going on at the moment so for our podcast listeners it's it's january right now and we've just come back from paris and we've you know where where trends are kind of forced into your head i guess a little bit but what, what i'm kind of loving is that these unique standalone initiatives that you know like, like you've just said like the oyster shells creating into table that's that's amazing it kind of like i don't know loosens the 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 kind of barriers around trends and therefore there is no such thing as trend really in interior design anymore it's all about answering to the space and reflecting sense of place and to I don't know making it meaningful for that particular project with all of this we're talking and, and it's amazing what, what you've done but what I also see and especially when we have panel discussions is you talk about what you've done and you see people start scribbling notes that all right must do that must do this must do that what, what advice would you give to designers wanting to do something different, wanting to create a social impact around their project and not just kind of follow and be sheep in, in the flock, but actually do something different? What advice would you give? I think there's two sides to it. One, so on the first point about people listening and scribbling down, I think that's really powerful and that's great that people are doing that because that's kind of the point. Um, I get really uh, animated when I hear about... Um, organizations who have like these huge uh databases of sustainable products that they just keep to themselves um if you if your intention is to truly improve our environment then why would that information not be open source so that people can follow suit that's just like a bit of a personal bug there i have and then if there is suddenly this open source space where people can be like try this try this you could use this you could do this then as things get discovered, as new products come to market, they can form part of that. Um, and, you know, I don't work for MBS or, or, or the RIBA specification, mm -hmm. but, you know, there must be some sort of institution that has the means and the funds to pull this thing together because there are sources online. You know, there's various websites you can go to, you know, Google sustainable materials, circular materials, and things pop up, but it's quite disparate. And because of the complexity and the nature of all these different materials, there's no kind of like one certification that covers all either. You've got like FSC for timber, you might have cradle to cradle for some tile products. You've got obviously like your green guide, which applies to sort of Briam and ties into all that. In the US, you've got lead, you know, so it's, it's, all, quite, um, uh, it's all quite fractured at the moment. So my advice to be is, is if you come up with something interesting or you discover something interesting then shout from the rooftops so that other people can hear you and, and follow suit because that that genuinely is where you have the biggest impact is in sharing that knowledge sharing that expertise and allowing others to follow in your footsteps and that's kind yeah. of you know, inhabit is a showcase of that principle you know we have been explicit about every single thing that we've used um, in articles in our press because we want people to to do the same if you just kind of keep it to yourself then you, you've just limited what you can really achieve you know
This series of Design Pod is sponsored by Geberit. As someone who sees the industry from a unique perspective and sees what's happening through a wide lens, I see sustainability somewhat losing its meaning. Therefore, the term and any claims need to be backed up with science, data, and perhaps accolades. For the third year in a row, the Geberit Group has received a Platinum Award from EcoVadis for its sustainability management. It places Geberit among the top 1% of all companies listed by EcoVadis across all industries and countries and demonstrates Geberit's comprehensive, systematic and long-term sustainability management plans. In the last series, we had Rachel Houlihan from Orms on the podcast to talk about sustainability. And I think in every series, we want to ensure that we have some sort of social, environmental, sustainability podcast, because I think things are changing so quickly. And also, it's really helpful to, as you say, hear from different people. And one thing she mentioned was um, the idea of material passports. So everything having its data and you understanding that if you put this material in a project, then 30 years time, it can be repurposed into X, Y, and Z. And just one because obviously she was mentioning that she wants this to become free information for everyone to to make the industry a better place can can you see that can you see that becoming a reality and have you heard anything from your perspective yeah i i think it started i think it starts life as a trend in the same way that you go into some restaurants now and you look on the wall and it tells you where your chicken came from you know that kind of idea of provenance and people are just obsessed, like, you know, I'm not going to order this salad unless I know where the lettuce was grown, which farm in Kent did it come from? I think that same that same logic can be applied to, to, to materials. Um, I had a really interesting parcel the other day from the Good Plastic Company. Someone in our studio had ordered their sample box. And, you know, there's lots of people that smile plastics. There's lots of companies doing you know, recycled solid surfaces with, with plastic. And it's, it's fantastic. It's very admirable that this is happening. Those, those single-use plastics should never really have existed in the first place, but we are where mm-hmm. we are. Let's do something with them. And what I absolutely loved about the sample pack was that on, it, on the back of every single sample, it told you the ingredients of what it was made up of. So you'd pick out the white one and it would say, you know, old PC monitors, keyboards, single-use plaques and, and microwaves, for example. And then you pick out the black one and it would say, car tires old imax and the aluminium but you know the, the the principle of like you could it was like the ingredients of that product and i just thought that was such an interesting idea and you know they're they're, they're a relatively small outfit but when you've got larger organizations again with the means so for example in habit when we were looking for a task specification we we work with mosa because we what, what we liked about mosa was that, that their uh all that their the range we were using was cradle to cradle certified I think it was 45% recycled content. I think like 90% of the content came within sort of 10 miles of their factory because essentially it's dirt and water kind of mushed up. And so that I think obviously larger organizations have that ability to sort of embed that story a bit more in their products. I think it could be communicated more clearly and that, and, and that should be the reason people buy it. Do you know what I mean? So I think it has to start with a trend and then it might become more, prolific throughout the the industry yeah absolutely and i think with um manufacturers as well it's, it's been really helpful 
all of a sudden the, the doors open in order to understand what happens behind the scenes and understand like the sustainability initiatives that are bigger than just the product design and the materials, but actually how the the company is working as a whole as well, which I think becomes yeah. a factor for architects and designers when they're um, specifying. And then obviously, because it's a competitive landscape, then their competitors have to follow suit. And then sooner or later, you've got this full transparency between architect, designer and manufacturer. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a few years ago, you'd go on a, a manufacturer's website to specify a tile or a carpet or whatever, and they would be selling lifestyle color ranges patterns and, and if you wanted the sustainable quote-unquote product it would be like you know hidden in some sub menu of some range and what's interesting to see is that all that stuff is floated to the top and now you go on any manufacturer's website and the first thing you'll hit is some video of a rainforest and they're telling you how their product is saving the world and it's such a change of mindset and it's such a change in their marketing which i hope is led by the consumer because the consumers are expecting more from the companies that they source their products and services they want to feel like if i'm specifying this for my you know it could just be my bathroom at home i want to know that i'm not poisoning a river in bangladesh right i want to make good choices and so i think i'm hoping that that change in just the mindset of the general population you know people vote with their pound is ultimately the thing that is causing this shift in in the way that the the, the larger companies market and sell their their products Absolutely. We could talk about materials and sustainability all day, but I really want to also capture the social element of, of your practice. And really, there's there's one example, there's one project that, you know, does this completely, and that's um, Shelter from the Storm. Talk to us about the, the brief for that project and why it was so important for you as a studio to, to take it on. We first met Shelter from the Storm, I think, back in 2017, 2018. We were introduced through a property agent that we work with, um, who's actually uh, a trustee of the charity. And they were being booted out of their um, premises in King's Cross because of the, call it what you will, redevelopment, shall we say, of King's Cross. <laughs> um, they didn't want a homeless shelter down the road, so they had found a new they had found a new location in Archway in North London, uh, and it was a disused Nisa supermarket that was, you know, leaky roof on a bit of a troubled estate, and they had they had um, procured this new site. And we originally, we were just going to work with them to get them planning, change of use. Um, and then it was one of those things that as we got to know them and we got to know the organization and we got to see just the incredible work that they were doing, um, that we just couldn't, couldn't let it go. <laughs> um, so we, we worked with them. And really, I guess for us as a practice, it's kind of going back to what I was saying earlier with the premise of free architecture, you know, it was like eight, seven, eight years in by that point, we had the means as a studio to commit some of our time pro bono, commit some of our time at cost, uh, and really just like roll up our sleeves and get stuck into that project as a commitment to social impact. And so we worked with them to convert this supermarket into a homeless shelter. Uh, originally, it was 42 guests. That's now gone down to 38 guests. Um, it's all focused around the central kitchen. Um, and then there's, you know, changing spaces and there's actually a community cafe, which is attached to the shelter as well. Um, and I think it's, it's a hospitality project at its heart, you know, just because these people are homeless doesn't mean that they don't deserve a nice environment uh, in which to rehabilitate themselves. And that's mm -hmm. what we liked so much about the organization was that it was about rehabilitation. It's about taking people when they're their absolute lowest point, what, for whatever reason, they've ended up on the streets, taking them in and just building them up again. So every single space had to be considered with this sort of mindset. And it's nothing I can truly understand. And it's nothing my colleagues can truly understand. So 
we very much lent on the founder, this lady Sheila, to sort of help us to understand what the, the, the experience meant, um, what the challenges were, you know, and how design could, you know, soften the impact of finding yourself in this situation, arriving at the shelter, and then being given the time and the space uh, to rehabilitate yourself to, to leave the shelter, because that's the ultimate goal is to get people out once they're back on their feet. So it's everything from the front door is literally just like a door in a wall. It's not some grand entrance, you know, it's, mm. it's look for the door on this street and you go down there and you find it. And then as you enter, you go through sort of a series of very small rooms. You don't just go into a space full of uh, all the other guests. That would be incredibly intimidating. You go in and you meet one person and then there's a space to have a cup of tea and a sofa. And then once you feel confident, you can move into the next space and go and see your, where you're going to be sleeping and then build up your confidence, if you like, to then go into sort of the communal area and, have a meal that's been cooked by volunteers that will do your laundry and get you your passport and give you an address so you can get a bank account you know all these things you don't really think about it's a it's a, an ecosystem that has to exist around the subject of homelessness so it's an incredibly nuanced and sensitive topic but the the shelter's been an incredible success uh, and actually almost become a bit of a campaign in the studio uh, so during covid obviously they needed to stay open because we were all stuck in our homes but if you didn't mm -hmm. have a home you were stuck on the streets so it was imperative that we could we could allow them to stay open so we went back during that time and we designed um, what I believe to be the most beautiful COVID screens of the pandemic. <laughs> um, uh, these are <laughs> these are other elaborate things that we created um, because why not? You know why can't why can't it be beautiful? Why can't it be yeah. um, and functional? Uh, and then since the since the pandemic, we we've been back and we've re reconfigured all of the bedrooms, which has reduced the capacity of the shelter a little bit, but it's given it a bit more meaning because now people have their own private space. They have a cork board where they can pin up whatever belongings they have left. They have a locker, you know, and it, it feels a bit more, you know, less like kind of bunk beds in a, in a hallway type thing. So it's become part of a, a campaign and we continue. Uh, we're actually working with them on some other projects at the moment to, again, sort of uh, improve the lives of the people that, that go through this experience. Um, and for us, it's been a real affirmation of the ability of design to make a positive social impact, which is the very origins of the practice, as I said at the start. So, um, yeah, it's been a, a very, a very amazing uh, experience for all, I think. And I think, you know, giving the most valuable part to the project, which is your time and your energy in a world that is pretty capitalist and, you know, all about growth and, you know, what project can we win next? It's really nice to just sort of sit down and reflect. I kind of just wonder... How, how do your team react to working on a project like that and how, how meaningful is that for your team in order to take what they've learned and you know what they're designing there and then putting it into other projects how, why is it so important for the team to to work on a project like that it's, i think it's you know it's it's very much embedded in the values and culture of our practice at the moment we're going through the the b corporation certification process and so you know we're, we're pinning our flag on this um, these ideas and anybody that joins the studio understands and, and many of them have joined us because of uh, the likes of Inhabit and, and Shutter from the Storm so it's hugely significant for them and you know as a company we we give uh, we allow the, the guys some time every year to do volunteering um, as a combination of sort of paid and unpaid time off in addition to holiday you know we're trying to like create opportunities within the studio that our, our, our team can can go out into the world and do their own thing it doesn't just have to be led by by the studio 
Uh, we do a lot of edu educational outreach. At the moment, we're working with a technical college in Newham. Um, they're actually coming in on Friday afternoon to do uh, crits because we've, again, been sort of trying to help young people, perhaps from some disadvantaged neighborhoods, get into architecture because it's an incredibly uh, long course. It's incredibly expensive. Therefore, it kicks out just kind of one single demographic. So we're trying to like open open that world up a bit. It's a hugely influential part of everything that we do. Um, yeah. And, and I think is just great for, for the team as well. And you mentioned B Corp, which, um, you know, B Corporation, uh, you're formerly part of that certification process. Um, yeah. That obviously counters in not just environmentally, but socially the impact you're making. I feel as if you were doing it all, all the way through, it's not as if you're trying to tick a box. And I think that's the difficulty with certifications, but actually processes like B Corp really just um highlight the work you're doing and just kind of just ensures that you're being steered on the right track i guess the thing i hadn't i, I think like become mm. something that you hear a lot about and until you've really gone through the process it's very difficult <laughs> to actually grasp what it's about and it's it's hardcore right like it's not it's not a walk in the park and i think what i've learned through the process is it's as much about what you are doing internally as an organization as it is about your impact business model which is what you are doing externally to make the world a better place and so strangely through the process we discovered that it wasn't actually our work with shelter from the storm or inhabit for example that was going to get us those points it was actually just like a broader approach to all of our work because you know shelter from the storm and, and inhabit are great showcase projects but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that we do that you know and and and, and it was learning through that process, you know, are our schemes cycle friendly? Do, you know, do they have on-site renewable energy? Do they monitor water usage? Have they used energy modeling to see how they can improve their operational carbon? You know, it's a, there was a huge amount of data attached to our external business model. But, but really, I think the immediate benefits have been felt internally because it's allowed us to, I think, formalize measure and improve the way that we probably were functioning anyway but it's just given us a framework to kind of sharpen things up so to give you for an example we have always paid a living wage to all of our staff including our the, the guys that come and clean our studio at the end of the day but you know now we are a certified living wage employer and it's a badge of honor that we can put on our website and we can tell our clients you know and it's things you were doing anyway but now it's kind of official and for that you get you get this and it's everything from making sure that we're not using toxic cleaning products to you know we have unbleached kitchen roll <laughs> um to our parental leave policy and um you know the volunteering hours that i talked about and you know the way in which we give feedback to our team and do me and john receive feedback from from the junior members of staff it's all about transparency and good governance and and that's just been such a worthwhile process and now it just everyone knows like what we are and what we're about and it's there and it's it's literally written as a policy that you can click on and download and read and that's yeah. been i think the most worthwhile part of it um uh, and, and as, you've as an hinted, organization and as you've hinted you know throughout this episode you know collaboration is key right not just with your clients but actually with corporations and people that you know have knowledge that you don't have because you're focusing on projects and what have you and then it's nice to kind of have those guidelines and those parameters i guess but also know that you're doing a good job what pitfalls do you see for architecture firms and designers when they try to be more sustainable or use different materials i think if you're not as au fait with the topic maybe everything is sort of end up having this hippie aesthetic you know lots of bamboo people for whatever reason associate that with sustainability and it's so much more 
nuanced than that. Um, and, you know, Marie from The Goldfinger, she she can reel off the UN definition of sustainability really well. I can never quite <laughs> remember it. But it's along the lines of it's not just about the environment. You know, it's, you've got to look at everything. And people yeah. are a huge part of that. And I think in our industry, maybe that's the thing that gets a bit overlooked. It's so, yeah. so quick to calculate embodied carbon, operational carbon, environmental impact. But actually, a huge part of our environment are the 7 billion people that we share this planet with. So we should be, be thinking about them as much as we should be thinking about everything else. It's, it's all part of one system. Um, you can't just isolate one part of it and try and improve that. You've got to think about the whole thing. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Um, Richard, thank you so much for your time, um, for talking to us, for sharing your stories. Um, I feel as if we're only at the beginning. I look forward to the next 10 years of Holland Harvey Architects and I look forward to catching up with you soon. Amazing. Thank you so much, Hamish. I have to say, when I first started researching this topic for this episode, since my amazing interview with Rachel Houlihan from Orms a few episodes back, I was concerned that we wouldn't really have much more to talk about given how insightful my interview with Rachel was and how much we kind of addressed, but how wrong I was. It feels to me that society is finally catching up with Richard and John's approach, and I really love how their narrative has played out over the years. It's not always easy going down a different path in architecture and design and in this business, and it can sometimes feel like mission impossible to go up against the big playing architect studios. But Holland Harvey Architects are living proof that good, meaningful architecture can actually change lives. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to be notified when the next episode of Design Pod will drop. Join me next time when I will meet more pioneers who are changing the game in design and architecture. <laughs>